Um, If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to Luke chapter 15. As I mentioned during the welcome, we have these invite cards on, um, on, your, on your form, and, and a lot of times I like to begin discussing things, answering the question, why? Why do we want you to invite people? Why do we want to create an inviting culture here at Christ Community Church? The reason why might seem obvious, oh, well, they just want to grow and get more people, or they want to grow and get more money. That's really not the goal for us here. We want to grow by people who are far from God, meeting God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and having their lives eternally transformed, and so that they can partner with us on that same mission. We want to have a community of believers who realize that they are saved from sin to go after those who are living in sin, not as those who are judging, but those who can relate in a very real and tangible way. And so that's why we're offering two services on Easter. That's why we're giving you these invite cards. That's why we're going to ask some of you to help us on social media to post the things that we're posting. And we're going to have some Facebook ads going, not just so we can get a big crowd to congratulate ourselves, but so that many people can come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ because he is the hope of the world. You can say amen there. That's that's amen worthy. I know we're very conservative. We're like, hmm, you Baptist groan. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, open to Luke 15. I'm going to say a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us by the power of your word, that you would convict us and help us, Lord, to identify areas of our lives that identify with one of these two brothers who are far from you, who are lost. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us, Lord, to treasure Christ in an increasing measure, that we would be a people who aren't um, just sealed by the gospel, but we are filled by your Holy Spirit, that we are mindful of the things that you care about, and that we care about those things deeply as well. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help me to faithfully articulate and communicate your word in a way that is honoring to you and helpful for our people here. I pray, Lord, that we would have a renewed vision for those who are far from you. And I pray for any man, woman, or child in this room today that is yet to value and treasure and submit to the kingship of Christ. I pray that you would help them to do so today. We're in need of you. We love you. We thank you that you have made a way through your son, Jesus. And we pray all these things trusting in his name. Amen. God's grace is equally needed by the self-righteous and the person who realizes their brokenness. His grace is needed by all. God's grace, the word grace means unmerited favor or undeserved favor. And God gives this undeserved favor by doing what we could never do, by sending his son Jesus to live a life we could never live, ultimately to die a death that you and I deserve on the cross, to be crushed, dead, and buried, and by God's power, three days later to raise him from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, so that anyone who trusts and believes in Jesus will be forgiven, adopted, cleansed, and made new, now and forevermore. And so as Jesus is continuing his ministry here in the Gospel of Luke, He's constantly being confronted now by these religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees had this mindset that they were right with God because of their birthright, and they maintained their rightness with God because of their observance to the law, their strict observance of doing what the law said. And so they were finding salvation not in the faith of God and faith in God. They were finding their salvation based upon what they were able to do because of that said faith. 
So we have to keep that in mind when we begin in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So we have tax collectors, the Pharisees, these sinful people. Uh, So notice it says tax collectors and other sinners. Right? April's coming, right? We we were in our area. People are like, I mean, I remember I was in our neighborhood yesterday. One of our neighbors who actually attends our church came outside, and he was just kind of shaking his head and working around. We're like, hey, man, what's up? You know, we were just chilling on a friend's driveway, and he's like, oh, I'm doing my taxes. Right? So no one likes the tax man. Right? God is good, crickets. No one likes the tax man. Get your pitchfork. Light a match. Okay, well, we've got to start somewhere. So you had sinners and tax collectors and the people that no one really liked. They were drawing near to Jesus. They, they wanted to come and hear what was being said. Jesus was communicating in such a way that these people were drawn. These people who were far off, they were drawn near. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. To eat with someone in this culture meant that you were accepting of these people. To bring them to your table meant that you were saying, hey, you have a place here. And for the unclean to draw near to Jesus, those who felt they were clean because of their obedience to the rules, this was offensive. And so, verse 3, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." So he begins by saying, hey, something of value, and livestock is valuable. And he says, hey, if you lost a sheep, you would leave behind the other 99 because that one sheep is of value to you, and you would go look for it, and you would go find it, and you would do whatever you could. And if and when you actually found it, you would celebrate. And you wouldn't just celebrate in isolation by yourself. You would celebrate by inviting other people to celebrate with you. There would be a massive celebration. Something that I find valuable was lost. I left everything behind to go and find it. When I find it, I then celebrate and rejoice. But Jesus then ties in and says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's more celebration over one broken person who gets made whole through Christ than... 99 people who righteously do their right things. Who find their salvation based upon their consistency in the Scripture or the rightness of their theology. Or their ability to defend certain doctrines. There is more celebration for the one who is broken, who is found, the one who is dead, who comes to life. How does that sit with you? Maybe that feels unfair. And if so, I'm glad you're here. He goes on and says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner, one sinner who repents. So this woman loses a silver coin, and the silver coin is of some value, and she stops everything. Doesn't say, well, that's just a loss, that's just a write-off, I'll just have to, to, to keep these other nine ones really safe. No, she stops, she begins, it says, lights all the lamps in the house. It's not about flipping a switch, it's burning valuable oil to go look for something of value. She makes an intentional gesture and effort to go find it. When she finds it, she celebrates, and then she lets everyone know, look what I found, I found it. I brought up here on stage with me my wallet, and although it still looks pretty thick, it's much thinner than it used to be. I bought a very fancy wallet that has pull-out tabs to carry all of my different cards and everything, and I have many different cards in here and a lot of different things I am involved with, and I'm not pridefully saying, look at how many cards I have, but the thing is, there's a lot of value in this one leather flap. And I remember one time I left my other wallet somewhere and I left it behind and the panic that came over me because of something of value, it was like all of a sudden everything else just didn't really matter that much. And yes, I know certain credit cards, they'll replace things that are purchased you know, by theft or whatever, but the amount of time and amount of effort that would take to replace some of those things and to fix those things and to worry about my identity and replace you know, my driver's license and all those things. And then I found it. And I was so happy I found it. I started telling everybody I found it. I think I might have even posted on Facebook I found it. I wanted everybody to know, I found it. Oh, thank God. Thank you, Lord. You know, and you start wanting to like giving things to people who help you who find it or, you know, give a big reward. Or, there's just gratitude. So Jesus is teeing these folks up. He picks up in verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So Jesus tells the story of this young Jewish boy, a young man who goes to his father and essentially says to him, I wish you were dead, because if you're dead, I would get what is rightfully mine. The older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger sons or children would have it split um, between them. In this parable, there is one older son and there is a younger son who gets a third of the inheritance. This means that his dad didn't, likely didn't have just a bunch of gold sitting around. He would have to liquidate assets. He would have to make great effort to compile these things. And then his son, he would give it to him. And then his son took it. And all the years of maybe the inheritance his father has had and all the hard work he has done, the son took it, ran off to a foreign country full of unclean people in the Jewish mindset, and then used it on reckless living. Just wasted it. Took what was rightfully his 
And not only was greatly offensive to his father saying, I want what you owe me, but he then took what was owed to him and he blew it on himself so much so that when the famine arose in the, in the country, he wasn't able to feed himself. He had to then go enslave himself as a Jewish young man to a non-Jewish person to go and handle some of the most unclean beings according to Jewish law, pigs. So if you can imagine the Pharisees who are standing there listening to this message, this story, this parable, and they're hearing about this young man who had told his dad, I wish you were dead, took all the stuff, went and squandered it on loose living. Some translations say loose living, you know, whether laying with other ladies or gambling or eating too much or drinking too much or whatever the equivalent was, just blowing away his life to the point of being broken to despair where he had found himself living in a pigsty, longing for the food that the unclean beast would eat. And you're a Pharisee listening to that, you're like, serves him right. He's getting what he deserves. Am I the only one that reads that and says, well, someone didn't take Dave Ramsey's financial piece. Where's his envelopes? That's what you get for not working hard. That's what you get for partying too much. That's what you get. So these Pharisees, he's just setting them up. He's teeing up this example of this very lost individual who was godless, basically dead now to his dad and his family and his community because they were to view him as dead to them because of his rebellion. And he's sitting there reaping what he had sown. No one had done it to himself except for himself. And it goes on, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger. Notice he didn't say, man, I sure miss my dad. I sure miss the talks we would have and the relationship we had. I sure miss his presence. None of that. His motives were, man, even his slaves eat well. He was only focusing on his felt need. He was only thinking about what it is he could do to make himself better, to raise up his circumstance. He's comparing himself to a slave and saying, I would rather have that with no identity and no relationship. I'd rather have the felt need met than to be here today. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound too far-fetched. And so he had a plan in place. Verse 18, I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him. So obviously he had some idea of his father's nature and character, some familiarity with it that he would even have the gall to go back and ask this question. But after all, he's already lost everything. So what would he have to lose. He says, I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt rage. No. He felt compassion. He felt an overwhelming, accepting love. He felt compassion, and he ran. Now, mind you, a Middle Eastern man of that dignity and stature would not be the one running. He wouldn't show his ankles. He wouldn't raise his robes. But Jesus says, so, I mean, 
the Pharisees at this point are like, what is this guy doing? Why is this, this father is so undignified, so ridiculous, so extravagant. Motivated. Now notice his father wasn't motivated by hatred or rage to go out there and rebuke and confront. He was motivated by this deep love and desire and compassion for his son that he humiliates himself, runs to his son, embraces him, and he kisses him. He grabs this boy who had basically told him, I wish you were dead, who took all of his stuff and blew it on life and living, and he saw him a way off. He went after him, grabbed him, kissed him. He didn't slap him. He didn't, as my friend Paul likes to say, throat punch him. He grabbed him and he kissed him. He didn't even give him a chance to give his speech. And the son still not getting it. I mean, and maybe, let's not be so hard on the son. Maybe he's like, what in the world is happening? I should say my talk. But if you read it right, he's like, his dad runs to him, he hugs him, he holds him, he kisses him. And the, and the, the guy, and it says, the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. He's saying, take one of my robes. The best one, the most fancy one. Come here and cover him with my robe. Identify him with my namesake. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring a fattened calf. This is like the delicacy beyond delicacies in this culture. Hold nothing back. Lavish on him identity and love and acceptance and presence and receive him not as a slave but as my son and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began right then to celebrate his father wasn't sitting there saying okay well we're gonna have to figure out some boundaries here he took him, he received him, he loved him, he accepted him, he released him of the former debt and clothed him in his own clothing, placing a family ring on his finger, not ashamed one bit of him, but receiving him in. My son was dead. The rabbinical teaching of that age held that if a son left in this manner, as I said earlier, he'd be considered dead in the family, to the family and to the community. Now, at this point, I can't imagine what the Pharisees were thinking. And I don't want to add to the Scripture, but we see later it was the Pharisees that were part of the group that had Jesus handed over to the Romans to be killed. And if you've spent your whole life believing that your good works and your legalistic tendencies are what makes you right and keeps you right with God, then this would be grossly offensive to you. If you find yourself comparing yourself, your righteousness compared to other people's sin rather than your righteousness or unrighteousness compared to a righteous God, then Jesus has something to say to you as well. So there's this big celebration. 
Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. Again, in this culture, to refuse to go into your father's home when there's a celebration going on is an act of hard-hearted disobedience and disrespect. See, a lot of times I've heard this sermon preached where people are down on the younger son but sympathetic towards the older son. But his actions don't show that he knows the character of the father any better than the younger son. His attitude and actions show that he doesn't value what his father values. His actions show that he values his father's stuff and his father's reputation and his father's power, but he doesn't value the same things his father values. And yes, if we, if we look at our economy of righteousness, I could understand why this feels very unfair. But the economy that we are working with isn't man-based economy, it's the economy of God. And so instead of just saying, well, if he doesn't want to come in, let him stay out, he then goes and pursues this son as well. The father goes after the older son too. Continuing in verse 28, his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, And I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, mind you, I can understand his anger even further because, like I said, if he's adopted back in, accepted back in, that would then dilute this older brother's inheritance even further. The remaining amount of inheritance that the older brother would have would then once again have to be shared by a third with his younger brother. And so the older brother speaking to, I've done all of this for you. You've not done anything back for me. Yet this waste of space, this young filth, has taken what you have given, has told you he wished you were dead, and he went and he spent it and squandered it. It shows us that this older son was just as lost as the younger one. That he didn't know the character and person and desires of the father. He didn't love and value what the father valued. He was only focused on his ability to make himself right and keep himself right. He was looking at it from a transactional standpoint and not a relational standpoint. You hear me speak about that a lot. The gospel of Jesus Christ was a transaction between the son and the father so that sons and daughters who are far off living as the young one or living as the old one could be restored and accepted and made to come back in. 
And that's my fear for us, church. The way we view those who are far off or who are different than us, the way we view those who have sinned grossly and openly, I fear that we run a great risk, myself included, of becoming like the older brother. That we compare other people's sin with ours and we make it so much based on, well, at least I'm not as bad as this other person, or at least I have these facts right, or at least I own these things, or at least I work hard, or whatever it is, and we gauge other people as lesser or worse, or that we are better when we don't realize that we too have lived a life in the pigsty. And your pigsty might be prettier looking, But in many ways, the older brother was feeding with the pigs as well. You just couldn't see it. My concern is that we would be a people who get together and congratulate each other on right belief and right practice. But that we don't value what God values, the the lost, those who are far from God. And therefore, that cultivates in us this entitlement that God owes us something because we do for God. And I know some of your stories. I know some of you lived an outwardly perfected life that then was exposed that you're living more like the younger brother than the older one. But I've also seen the hard-heartedness of unforgiveness in the older brother, older sister mentality of being unwilling to release and forgive because you don't have an accurate understanding of your brokenness and unfaithfulness to God yourself. When was the last time that our heart was broken for those who are far from God? When was the last time that mattered to us? When was the last time that we were stunned by the extravagant, lavishing grace of our Father in heaven? Who, while we were far off, came and pursued us and saved us. So we have this idea when tragedy comes and God owes us, and hear me, I'm not one saying that there isn't time where we experience trauma or hurt or frustration, but a perpetual unwillingness to release and forgive, a lack of humility and being unwilling to acknowledge the ways that we sin against God, not even against other people, but our sin against God, ways that we come before God and say, God, I've sinned against you by being dishonest here, by, by being prideful here, by positioning myself here, by managing my reputation in this way, God, forgive me. And God, forgive me for not caring about what you care about. You see, there's other ways this manifests the older brother mentality. One of them is racism. That we class people in different demographics and different races and different cultures, and we immediately view ourselves better than those people. We have something in common across all races and nations, and that's called sin. And our sin might be prettier or more acceptable or more hidden, but it's sin nonetheless. We see this older brother mentality by comparing people who don't have as much as we do or judging those who have more than we do. We have the self-righteousness that we buy into and we build into. And so when we see people who are far from God genuinely repent of sin and start walking in righteousness, even though we ourselves still sin at times, we don't celebrate, but we judge and we're skeptical. 
I admit to you, as your pastor and as your friend, I struggle with that as well. When people tell me so-and-so got saved, I come sometimes with a critical, skeptical spirit. We'll see. And all of a sudden, I become this fruit inspector. And I forget that the fruit in my life didn't happen overnight or over a period of six months or a year. That having followed Jesus now about 20 years, almost 21, there's still a lot of work in me. There's still sin I struggle with. There's still need to humble myself. But one of the ways you know that you're behaving like an older brother is if you're so intoxicated by the sins of others that you cannot accept and own your own, then you might be an older brother. If you find yourself hard-hearted and unforgiving or more concerned about the offense that's been done to you rather than the offense that the other person's done before a holy God, then I'm concerned for you. Most of the people I've seen come to faith in Christ Community Church so far haven't been unchurched people. They have been people who grew up in the church and made some sort of prayer at some point in their life, but they've never known the heart of the Father. Timothy Keller puts it this way, talking about the older brother and the prodigal God. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. I'm going to say that again. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're sitting in a pigsty longing for pods and you're going after any spiritual thing, any physical thing that will feed that hunger and draw that need. There's a Father in heaven waiting for you to get up and run home. And he's made a way for you to become righteous through the third son, the perfect one, Jesus. So there's three things that you can take away. I know some of you note-takers have been dying because I haven't given you stuff to write down. The first thing we've got to remember is God cares about sinners. God practically cares about those who don't even acknowledge his existence. God cares about the atheist. God cares about the person from a different faith background. God cares about the sinner. I forget that. See, one of the ways that the older brother attitude comes up in me is I start viewing people as projects, things to be fixed rather than people that need to be saved by God. And I start saying things like, oh, I'm working on them. And I can church it up because I know that's wrong theology, but the reality is, most of the time, I feel too busy tending to the 99 that I forget the one. And we can't be a church that forgets the one. That's not the heart of our Father in heaven. If your theology isn't fueling your mission, then your theology is a waste of your time and knowledge. If your theology isn't fueling your worship and isn't spurring you on towards growth and repentance, then you're missing that opportunity to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
The second thing is God forgives sinners who trust in Jesus. Whether you like it or not, even your worst enemy can be saved by God through his son Jesus Christ. And that may indeed be the Father's will. Some of you know my story. I was in a car crash when I was 17, resulting in the death of a friend of mine. One of the key highlights in my testimony is when my friend's parents came to see me. I'd met them one or two times. I don't even know if I'd met his dad before. And I remember I was still in a mental hospital on suicide watch, and they brought me into this room, and they said, they set me down and said, Casey, we want you to know that we're Christians and we forgive you. That was so crazy to me. That was so crazy. Why? Why? Because they had been so well forgiven by God that they could not not forgive. They had to. God forgives sinners who trust in Jesus. As Paul writes in Romans 10, he talks about how is it that they are going to believe unless someone is sent to preach them, preach to them? How are they going to hear about it unless someone tells them? And my heart is that we would be a people as we study the Word of God and as we read books and learn theology, would be part of that would be fueled by our heart and desire for mission. That when we study theology, uh, what I was thinking back, talking to a few friends of mine, and I realized a lot of my theology I've learned was in response and sometimes a reaction to conversations I was having with non-believers or new believers. That, that the study was prompted by my ability to want to have something to say. I remember one of my preacher friends would say, Casey, my prayer for you is that when you open your mouth, eternity would come out. I don't know what that means still, but it sounded good. I'm sure it sounds like Star Wars music or something. But that I would have something to say, and, and I would be able to say, I don't know, but let me find out. And so my, my, my doctrine, my desire to know God was fueled by having something helpful to say to those who are far from God, to have something to say to bring conviction under those who know God but have forgotten the goodness of God and feel like they're in a transaction with God and they do things for God, but they don't love Him and they don't love the things He loves, which leads me to the third thing. We must learn to care about what God cares about. God cares about forgiveness. God cares about the sinner who is to be saved. God cares about the sinner who believes they're saved because of their outward uh, performance or their knowledge. He cares about those people, and he wants them to know the freedom and liberation that we have in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus, in the high priestly prayer in the gospel of John, verse 3 is one of my favorite verses. You hear me say that a lot. I have a lot of verses that I love. He says this, and this is eternal life. We want people to have eternal life, but it's not just going to get wispy wings and to float around and to polish the gold ground on the roads. That's not eternity. What is eternal life? Jesus says here, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life. To have God. To have the Father. To know that no matter what comes in this life and life happens to us all, that there's a Father in heaven who is mindful of us and who loves us and who restores us and redeems us and then in spite of all of our brokenness, desires to use us. 
to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to bring about his redemption and salvation, to bring restoration in your home and in your marriage, to bring salvation and liberation to the addict. The Father in heaven is a wonderfully loving Father. May we never get stuck being the older brother or older sister that is just full of condemnation, full about what we're not about. And and I'm tempted often to go there because that's often praise in our culture. We're more concerned about being right than knowing the one who's right. We're more concerned about being served and helped rather than serving and helping others. Yet Jesus in his teaching, which ultimately led to him being betrayed by these people and killed, told them, hey, guess what? If you... If you're unwilling to forgive and restore and allow Jesus to do his work, you're just as lost. You're just as lost. If you love the white Jesus, but you're a racist in your heart, you might be lost and shocked because Jesus wasn't white. Some of you are like, well, I can't go here anymore. He doesn't believe in white Jesus. Let's not be those people. Look, we don't need a big crowd in here just to feel good about ourselves. And some people, that's what they base success on. I know it's easy for me to do that. We want to invite more people. We want to be an inviting culture because God cares about the one and so should we. People need Jesus. They don't just need church. If you're here just for church or here just for me, Please don't be. The church will disappoint you, and so will I. Don't be here for that. You don't join a church just because you like the speaker and the seats are comfortable, because they're not. Be here because the word is preached, and you're encouraged towards God, and you're encouraged to serve, so it's not just about you. And you're called to more than just yourself and your kingdom, but to be a participant in God's growing kingdom that you're not allowed just to stay in unforgiveness and brokenheartedness and anger, but you're called to come and say, I repent. And not just at the beginning, but throughout your journey with the Father in heaven. God cares about sinners. God forgives sinners who trust in Jesus. He is the perfect brother. And we must learn to care about what God cares about. Because at the end of the day, God's grace is equally needed by the self-righteous and the person who realizes that they are in a pigsty. If there's anything additional that you're hoping in your salvation, for your salvation, that I encourage you to change the way you think. If you find yourself more concerned about comparing your righteousness to that of the unrighteousness of someone else, you're an older brother and you need to repent. If you're unable or unwilling to forgive, we're here for you. We've been there. Some of you have been grievously hurt. And so I don't want to be trite or just like, well, just rub some Jesus on it. But I'm saying, if you're not taking steps towards forgiveness, if you're not taking steps towards understanding, even though your sin might not be as ugly, it's equally offensive to God and equally costs the same thing, the death of a son. Or maybe you're here today and inwardly, your life is a mess. You're secretly living a double life. You might look like the older son, but quite honestly, you're living like the younger one. I urge you in the name of Jesus to repent, change your heart, change your mind, and be restored to God. Come home. 
So whether you're, if you're the younger brother or the older one, or not even sure, but realize your heart is far from the Father, and you don't care what the Father cares about, then come home. Let's pray.